Welcome, everyone, to episode 35 of the Fire Nuggets podcast. We're really psyched to, uh, to get to talk to our guest today. Uh, but we want to first say a quick thanks to our sponsor, Vanguard Safety Wear. We really appreciate them giving us the opportunity to talk to great guests. So thank you, Vanguard Safety Wear. Uh, be sure to check them out for all your glove and apparel needs. So today is December 6, 2022, and we're psyched to be able to jam with our great guest today, Justin Lorenzen, a.k.a. JLo. The goals here are pretty simple, bringing great guests and try to mine as much gold as possible. We have Jeff, Brian, and myself, Nick, on the turntables today. So thanks for coming on the show today, JLo. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. All right, homie, we're going to jump right into this. So a little intro that you gave us. So you've been on the job for 17 years total, 14 of those being with Oklahoma City. Where were you when you started? Uh, like like what, what departments were you on prior to Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma City? And then what assignments have you had on OKC? So I started, uh, I got my paramedic and uh, I think it was like uh, 2005, right around there, and started working for Noble Fire Department, which is a small single station um, combination department just south of Norman, where I live. Um, started there, worked there for about three years, and then applied for the city and got on Oklahoma City. And then since I've been at Oklahoma City, I've mainly in suppression. And once I made um, driver or lieutenant, started driving battalion chief, and then came down to training for about three years. And went, I've been back out the field after that and so on. Where are you now? I'm currently right now on special assignment down at training for a recruit class, but I am stationed at Station 7 on the Green Shift, South Side, Capitol Hill. Uh, where I drive our battalion chief 603. Nice. Thank you. Can, can you uh, can you talk about your time in training just kind of briefly as an overview for everybody? Yeah. So when I got down here in 18, we had a recruit class that started roughly probably two or three months after I got down here, a class of about, I want to say it was 45, 46, somewhere in there. And then um, did that academy. That was 18-1. Ran another academy right after that, or was part of an academy right after that, 19-1, and then two more after that before I came out. So pretty much mostly recruit academies. That keeps us pretty hooked up. Um, in between, we do promotional academies for um, our promotions to lieutenant, captain, that kind of stuff. So we are also kind of juggling those. Um, and then any department training, crew development, that kind of stuff that come down the pipe. So pulling that thread just a tiny bit more, how long is your recruit academy? And then what's your promotional academy look like? Just kind of like 30,000 foot view of those. So our uh, recruit academy, originally we did 18 weeks uh, with 18-1. We shortened that down because we felt like we had a couple of weeks where they were just, it was just monotonous. I mean, they had everything down there ready to go to the field. So it was, we were asked by the administration, hey, can we shorten this, you know, would this be better? And we're like, yeah, we can do it. So we shortened it down. Um, to 16 weeks and ran 16 weeks from there on out. We didn't do any of the um, accelerated eight-week classes that are part of the same class while I was down here. Um, that was after I came out, but we're doing that now as of probably two classes ago. But while, while I've been down at training, roughly, oh, I'd say 180 to 200 recruits came through, almost a whole shift because we had about 250 on shift. Your accelerated is for people that already have fire one and fire two, is that correct? And maybe they're hazmat? 
Correct. Yeah, they'll have their firefighter one, firefighter two, um, and then their hazmat, and then also their EMT, I believe. Okay. And then how about your promotional academy? What's that look like? Promotional academies will have, so our first um, competitive promotion basically is sergeant. And it's kind of weird. I, I kind of get a um, couple weird looks when I explain our ranks, but you make sergeant and you go through a sergeant's academy. It's a two week academy. Um, they put you through fire officer one. That's a, a few days in the first week. And then there's other uh, chiefs that come from the field that'll teach like strategies and tactics. Um, we'll have fire prevention come in. They'll do some stuff with like um, pub ed kind of stuff and um, take them do like fire prevention as far as sprinkler systems, stamp pipes, that kind of stuff and kind of what they do in code. Um, and then they have, I think now it's three or four days dedicated solely to fire studio where we'll bring in uh, battalion chiefs from the field and they'll basically be the evaluators and not so much as like a testing but a more of a learning getting experience and hearing um, the experience from the chiefs as they're running through scenarios at the sergeant level they start kind of basic your first five ten minutes of running command and then um, that it progresses as you come into say lieutenant's academy and then captain's academy so you go to lieutenant after you're um, a sergeant for a year then you can go to captain if you test for captain and you make the test or make the list, you'll um, go to a captain's academy and they break it down for the fire studio like in levels. So you'll start at being in charge of uh, or being in command for five, first five, 10 minutes, all the way to whenever you come in for your majors academy, you're now running or setting up and running divisions. So it's kind of a progressive thing as you move through the ranks. And each academy has a certain certification, whether it's fire officer one, um, uh, safety officer, um, was the uh, inspector, which I think they're getting away from doing the fire inspector. And then I think that's it on those. And so just to make sure I'm tracking correctly, your ranks are uh, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, major. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sergeant, sergeant, you test for lieutenant is like a career development. So it's automatically given. Then you test for captain. And then after um, you're captain for a year, two years, you go to major. And then it, to go higher than that, that's when you start, uh, you have to write, you have to get, have 13 years on job in suppression. And then you can be a ride out, which is um, a major station officer at a chief station. So when that chief's off, you ride out as chief for that day. And so you do that before you test for battalion chief. Well, that was very intricate. Yes, it's it's it can be very confusing. All right, and so I'll, I can add to that. Sorry. Um, so, sergeant and lieutenant are our drivers. They're they're sole responsible is driving the rig. But when you make sergeant, you could go to a single company house like I did, and my officer was there for about a month and then took off for a while. So now I was a six year on the job, brand new sergeant in charge of a four-man crew on an ALS engine and that's kind of one of the turning points where I you know you know how it is when you're when you're fairly new on five six years you know everything it's like there's nothing else you know at least that's what I thought until that day that I got promoted to sergeant and now I'm running a crew and I was like what is going on so that was kind of a turning point for me to really dive in and, and get a lot more into the job and realize how much I really didn't know nice 
So you noted in your brief intro that you are the driver for Battalion 603. So how does one, uh, you kind of went over it just now. Um, so like that's obviously like a tested position, but what what do you do um, driving the battalion uh, when, when you arrive at a fire or, or an incident? So kind of preface that you, you test for sergeant or to make driver. Um, as far as becoming a chief's aide or driving battalion chief, that is when the battalion chiefs test and they make a battalion chief, they have a fire chief's interview. And in that interview, the fire chief wants to know who they pick because they get to choose their ride out and they get to choose their driver. So they have to, uh, they come to that interview to let the chief know who they want to ride out for them and who they want to drive them. So the fire chief can approve that, if, you know, it's somebody that he thinks that was, will do that well. So um, it's it's an ask, it's like a uh, invitation basically. It's not just, hey, I'm gonna test to be a chief's driver. So um, the chief that asked me to drive him, I worked with as a firefighter, he was my station officer. And I pretty much kind of followed him around with the chief that we had at the time until he made chief for the most part. And he asked me to drive him. So I started driving. As far as what we do, um, I take him, or I drive obviously everywhere we go. We have our, our chief's trucks and we go on fire alarms, house fires, you know, working fires, um, commercial fires, obviously. And then um, any significant calls that may need a battalion chief on scene. Um, each chief is different on what their driver does for them. But for the most part, chief's driver's um, responsibilities are to control utilities and then um, kind of be his accountability officer. So with Chief Pascal, the chief I drive now, um, he is, we've known each other long enough. We work together well enough that I, he pretty much has me just go in and like go in with search or fire attack or whatever, kind of be his eyes on the inside. So um, I pull utilities occasionally if it's needed. Um, not all fires need the utilities pulled and it's kind of a call that I make or he ha he makes and kind of decide on that. But if it's anything over just like a, your run of the mill single family fire, if it's a large commercial, then I'll uh, pull the tray out, the out of the back, set up our command board, start tracking companies who we have in staging, who's, you know, who's on what assignments let him know who he has available, who he doesn't, who needs to go to rehab and that kind of stuff, which is basically his accountability officer. Um, I can't wait to dive into that position because I, I, I have a couple questions uh, loaded up for that. But before we get there, I want to make sure that we, we do a good job of kind of telling everybody who you are. You're also a Fools member with Mid-America Fools um, and an instructor through them. Can you tell us about your relationship uh, and, and your time on with the Fools? Yeah, so I uh, got really mostly involved in that um, when I came down to training. Um, I wanted to be involved a lot earlier, but I couldn't fully commit to attending all the meetings, which is not a necessity, but I didn't want to commit and, be, and become a member and then not be um, available or be something that they could use. So um, it was the right time to talk to the wife. It was the right time that I could free up some time to make the meetings, um, go to our trainings that we have throughout the year. Cause we'll put on, um, spring break your habits, which is an all day, just hands-on running, um, your drills and stuff, hand lines, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I got, 
evolved with them about 2018. Um, I love it. All the guys we have there, like-minded, uh, we're all in it for the right right reason, the same mission. Um, and we eventually, about 2019, had every member of the training staff also involved coming to meetings, which helped a lot because um, everybody was on the same page as far as skills and how we taught stuff and how things went about. So it's it's been a big big turning point for me also with the fools and it's it's awesome man because you get to get out to these trainings and stuff and we attract um probably it's probably the same way a lot of other places too but our fools group tracks a lot of the smaller departments um rural um not so um, urban like we are to our trainings because they don't get that level of training at their departments for the most part um and we do it at no cost for a majority of it, you know, our conference we charge just to cover a cost. Nobody's making money off of it other than who we bring in, but um, it's a, uh, it's a pretty cool thing. And it's, it's cool that you got, you call guys up, say, Hey, we got an acquired structure who's in, and you got guys that just come out of the woodwork to come out and put on some awesome training for departments that otherwise couldn't afford it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. You're, uh, from what, what I see from your guys' Facebook page, you guys, yes, crush it. Um, so keep up the good work. Now, Nick and I know how you got involved with uh, the Firefighter Rescue Survey, but why don't we go ahead and, and tell the, the masses uh, kind of your involvement, what you do, and how, how you came became involved with that. Uh, as far as my involvement, uh, pretty much just kind of read messages that we send each other. No. Um, no, it's, I guess, kind of where I fit in for the most part, if you want to call it that, is just coming from our internal survey. Um, and that was really mostly brushed that kind of um, introduced that to you guys. And it kind of took off from there. I didn't expect any of that at all. Um, so as far as being come involved with FRS and getting more into it and, and using the data and teaching stuff, that's, that's kind of where it all started. Um, and it really that stemmed from not being able to actually put our stuff on off or on FRS uh, initially, but it's obviously not that way now. And it's progressed to something way bigger than I ever expected. All right. One of my favorite things that we get to talk to our guests about uh, family. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, your wife and, uh, and your kids? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my wife, Raquel, have been married, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 17 years about pretty much the same time I've been in the service. Um, the summer that I got my paramedic license and got on Noble Fire Department. In fact, the fir my first two weeks for Noble, they allowed me to um, take my honeymoon because it was already scheduled. So that's kind of unique because all my wife has ever known is fire department. Uh, I've got two boys, Noah, my oldest, he's 13, my, and Braxton, my youngest, he's 10, or just turned 11, I'm sorry. Um, and they're both, I think, going on 18 right now to be honest <laughs> but uh you guys know how that goes but they uh they're awesome man my wife i couldn't ask for more she's extremely supportive um and she gets right in the middle of all of it so it's a pretty cool deal and she she's actually um she's part of the firewife life um preventing the flashover with um sabrina and and corley's wife amanda um with that that stemmed to them creating a uh, peer support team for family for our fire department, Brooklyn City Fire. And now they have, I believe, six to eight members. And they're available for spouses 
um, or other firefighters to contact um, if they're just having a rough time, need somebody to talk to or anything. So they now have an actual designated peer support team for family and spouses. That's really cool. I, I was unaware of that. That's really cool to, to learn that Raquel and, and uh, Amanda and, and everybody else is doing that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right. So now that we got that, uh, that bio, let, let's kind of dive into some of these questions here. All right. So kind of going back to the chief's aid, uh, like Nick said, we got some questions on it and uh, so just some follow-up. So uh, through the American fire service, obviously like uh a lot of people are understaffed, you know, doing engines and trucks with one, two or three people. Um, but obviously, you know, OKC sees the chief's aid as a position that is very vital and, and valuable to the organization. So what what does what does OKC, uh, from what you know, see as, as the most valuable thing about this position to where it needs to be staffed and funded? So with that position, uh, our previous fire chief, uh, Chief Keith Bryant, he, from what I've heard at one time, said that the the chief's aides is one position he'll never get rid of when it comes to, to staffing or browning out and that kind of stuff because of um, what they do. So outside of making fires and driving chief around for that kind of stuff, I also handle all the staffing for our district. So in our district, we have seven stations. Uh, um, we have roughly... I want to say it's 53 to 55 personnel and I handle like if they need days, if they're, they put in for days off, how many slots we have available for the district. Um, we also have like district slots that they can take off of that's outside of their station calendar, call-ins, uh, sick leave, death and family, any of anything that has to do with staffing or scheduling. I, I take care of all of that. And that starts first thing in the morning, whether we got a loan, loan bodies to different stations. Somebody needs medics or officers or whatever. Um, the chief state handles that for their district pretty much on that aspect of it. Anything that we can do administratively wise to keep off the chief's plate because he's got plenty of other stuff that he has to deal with and, and worry about. So the way I work it with Chief Haskell with uh, 603 is um, I try to do everything staffing to the point where he doesn't have to do anything with it. So. That's kind of the administrative side of it. Um, obviously, we go to, you know, occasionally here and there, have to go to meetings and stuff, but um, the most part of it is staffing and, and making fires. So this, this you know, to, to just kind of reiterate what Jeff was saying is this position seems to be underappreciated in the fire service um, and obviously underfunded. Um, what are some lessons that you've learned while being in the chief's buggy um, that you would not have learned if you were not sitting next to the BC or filling into that role as a, as an aide or safety officer or, or whatever else you do on uh, operational scenes? Uh, man, I'd, I'd say it's, you kind of get a different look, a different view of the, of the fire department and, and kind of how things go more from a command aspect, especially um, being right, right next to chief on scene and stuff, just that um, the regular exposure to um, being in command and making assignments and um, running an actual scene. And then outside of that, the takeaways afterwards, you know, we always have some type of discussion on the way back to the station after fire about what went well or what could have changed. And, and the chief that I drive is extremely humble. 
And it's usually every time we're on our way back, he's always beating himself up about what he could have done different or what he said on the radio. Um, but it, none of it's even relevant because he's freaking stupid smart um, and an awesome chief. And, and the other cool thing is just seeing that um, example of a working chief. You know, you won't see him sitting at the chief's car just sitting there making assignments. He's usually the first one. He's doing the 360, see what he can find, seeing what, what he has and where he needs to start making a difference with his crews. Um, and then if any, any difference is actually being made, you know, do we need to switch gears? Do we need to call an audible? And so just kind of watching that and being exposed to that over and over and over, I think is, is huge. Um, it's been a huge learning experience for me and I think it'll help in the future uh, if I do decide to promote up to captain or, or from there, um, it's just, uh, it's hard to explain. You just have to, you have to see it and, and, and be around it and be involved in it. And 603 is actually probably one of the busier battalions. Uh, we don't just make fires in our district. We make them with surrounding districts. So every fire gets two BCs. Um, if we're second in, usually, uh, we're assigned safety. And so we'll essentially we'll have two safety officers, me and him just kind of putting eyes in different places um, or I'll, if they need help with something assisting. We also, our BCs carry Sino kits. So if we have um, a known entrapment or we have known victim or crews are pulling a victim whatever, out or whatever, then with me being a paramedic, I'll usually grab our cyanide kit and be and get that to the patient where we can start administration and that kind of stuff as well. So, I mean, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge um, position. I mean, you can make it what you want. You can make it to where you can do as much as, as you need to, or you can make it to where you don't do hardly anything at all. It's just kind of how you, how you uh, go about it. But very rarely will you see um, most of our aides, not all of them, but a few of them get off the car and not be fully bunked out with a pack ready to do something or be available. So. Man, that's awesome. So what, uh, Nick and JLo, let's remember when we get to the FRS stuff that we bring back up cyano kits because I think that's something not talked about enough. So I think uh, definitely get uh, OKC, which has used quite a bit of them. Uh, let's let's talk about that when we get there. So we talked about in in your bio, you, you've spent some time in the training division. How has that shaped uh, the outlook of the job for you and and training in general? Uh, a lot. It's, it's shaped it a lot. So I originally made the decision to come down to training because um, not necessarily I'd, that I didn't like how things were being done, but it just seemed like we were kind of antiquated. Um, not a whole lot of new, fresh ideas. Not saying there wasn't some, but um, I just wanted to, like, I could sit back at the station and we could complain and grab about it around the table or you can put in to go down and training and try to actually do something about it. So that was kind of the, the reason why I went down. Um, but as far as being down there and how it's helped, it's been phenomenal. Um, you know, they, a lot, a lot of people say the best way to learn something is to teach it. And I was, I was very nervous about that when I first came down talking to people and teaching and, and teaching something, but it's, I'm one of those people that I don't want to look stupid in front of somebody. So I want to know what I'm talking about. So it drove me to really dive in and dig in what I'm actually presenting and teaching. Because if there's one thing that kind of bothers me more than anything is going and listen to somebody teach that 
basically puts on this facade that acts like they know what they're talking about um, and not really be into what the, the uh, actual information is. So that was kind of a, that was kind of the reason why I came at it and what I took from it. Um, and also I talked because I was driving chief at the time, whenever I first came down to training and I talked to him about it and I said, what do you think about me putting in for that training officer spot? And he's like, well, the Mike Pascal says, hell no. But the chief Pascal says, absolutely. He said, I think everybody should do their time down in training because, but Mike wants to be selfish. He goes, I think you should take that opportunity because it'll, it'll better for your career. So uh, that's what I did being down here and, and going through the amount of uh, recruit classes that we had uh, being exposed to the promotional academies, um, our AOA apparatus operators Academy, um, all of that stuff and being given certain subjects, Hey, this is what you're going to, you're going to present over. This is what you're going to teach on. Um, opened up the amount of stuff that I've kind of dug into and, got knowledge from and learned more about, which I think in turn has made me a better driver back out in the field, being exposed to all that and doing that kind of stuff. So it's been, uh, it's been awesome. The time that I spent down there, they only require 18 months when you go down to training as a training officer, uh, you have to do at least 18 months. Um, but it was, we had such a good group down here as far as training officers and we we're killing it, putting out new stuff and, you can be as busy as you want. You can be as slow as you want, but it was just like it was nonstop down here, but we were having a blast and learning so much. So yeah, it was awesome. That sounds like a really healthy culture for your training division. And I think sometimes Absolutely. that's a microcosm for the entire department too. So that's, that's awesome to hear that OKC is, is, uh, has a strong pulse there. Well, and, sorry, Nate. No, please, baby. Uh, you brought up about the culture thing. So that, original group that we ended up all getting down here you know Danielle, Wiley Gabehart, Court Smith, myself, Brian Short. Um, Dane kind of took it upon himself and rebranded training whenever he came down here and that's where we came up with the anvil and our motto one standard. Um, we named our drill grounds called the forge because that's where we you know forge recruits into the firefighters that we put out in the field. Um, so just that it seems like a small thing that just rebranding and coming up with that kind of stuff, but it turned into something totally bigger. And then I don't, I think I've told you guys or showed you pictures at least of the, the chain we have on the wall that Dane did. It's got our emblem and then they've got, it's got a chain link for every member that's ever been hired since 1889, including the first original volunteers. And it just loops around our emblem. And then they continue the chain up and down the wall, each recruit class and each recruit is given a link when they start the academy to show that right now they're just a link, but when they graduate the academy, they become something part, part of something bigger. They become part of the actual chain. So then they, at the end of the uh, academy, they put all these links together, which we just take another link of chains the same amount and we tack it to that wall with the year of their class. And now they're now attached to the bigger thing. So that, that was a big thing as far as culture. I love that just kind of conscious, like having the meta-analysis, like to consciously create that culture from the bottom up. Um, obviously, there was still stuff in place, but to, to put it upon yourselves, take it upon yourselves to build that into something bigger and better. Uh, kudos to you guys and gals. Um, so while you were in training, what were some of the successes that you had that you're the most proud of? 
I think, man, I have to, I keep saying the recruit academies. Um, it's, it's something that's almost unexplainable as far as seeing this raw thing come in as far as like a recruit. And some of these kids, like this is their first job. They've never had a job in their life before this. Um, and then just the benchmarks that they hit and the progress they make in that 16 weeks is is pretty cool. And it's, I mean, it's rewarding really because you get to see all the work they put in from the very beginning to where they come out as at the end is just top-notch, you know, firefighters ready for the rig. Um, the other part of that is seeing like, seeing that moment in the academy. So every recruit has their own moment. You know, they struggle with skills. They struggle with certain things. We do a, a, a firefighter survival stress inoculation week um, where I'll put them through our uh, one of our training uh, houses and smoke it up, make it hot in there with like um, the torpedo heaters. And then I'll just blare like YouTube one hour chainsaw videos and they go in on air, live smoke, and we'll have to, they'll have a puzzle. So like one of them is literally a little kid's plastic box that has a lid on top that has a square circle star and whatever else. And they have to, and I'll place the pieces to that puzzle. I'll show them what it is before they go in. This is what it looks like. This is what you need to complete. And you have to do it on, on air. And all these pieces you will find in areas that you would possibly find victims or search benchmarks where you where you would find windows behind doors, a door, outside the door, in the hallway, whichever. And they have to find those pieces in this kind of stressful environment, complete the puzzle and come out. If they don't complete it, we have them work through their Viber Alert. And then as they get closer to their Viber Alert running out, then they, um, if they have to unclip, they have to put a newbie in their mask and filter breathe, which it's not far to get out. but. With that being said, an important part of it is I also have a one-to-one -one instructor to student ratio. Like somebody's always watching each person. So they're not ever just let loose somewhere. I'm sitting there, I'm monitoring them with the tick, watching what they're doing and listening to their breathing. And I've had a handful that they start to get into that panic mode, frustration mode, and I'll stop everything. Turn the music off, I'll turn a flashlight off, I mean on, and I'll have them control the breathing get their heart rate back down, talk to them, talk them through the issue they're having, which is usually very simple. It's just, they're getting too too stressed out. Talk them through that, that puzzle, that problem. Once they're back down to that lower heart rate, their breathing slowed down, then we start back up to what we're doing and then come out. And like I said, I've had a handful of those, of the recruits that that, that was their moment. You could see it in their face. They, and, they, and we never, on the drill ground with anything, we never end on failure. We always end on success. So when they get done with that and they come out and they've completed this task that they thought at first, they were already in their head, they thought was impossible. They've come out and they've completed this and you see this aha moment. Like I, I did it, I can do it. So I think that's, I, that's a big takeaway for me too. You said a lot there. One thing I wanna kind of highlight and have you maybe just explain a little bit more. You said you always end on success. What's the mindset uh, for that and, and why do you guys do that? So we always end on success and not a failure because if you end on a failure, they're doing a skill and you end on the failure, then that's all they know. Okay, I failed at this. I, I can't complete it. So now what? I can't, how do I, you know, I can't get any better. I, I failed on that. 
stop whatever we need to do to make it to where they succeed at it, then they know there's no question and no doubt that they can't do it. And we don't have any recruit do anything on that drill ground at the forge that we that we don't do or demonstrate ourselves first. So they know it's possible seeing it, but it's a different thing being able to tell themselves it's possible for me to do it. And so by ending on that success, then you're ending on good. You're ending on a good thing rather than that failure where they're just they're just beating themselves they're just down so the next time they come out to try to do that skill they already i failed it last time i'm not going to get it this time so that's always in the back of your head so always in on always in on the success excellent well you know that i love uh training and conferences and and, and shit like that so uh for the last couple of years uh mid-american fools conference has been absolutely crushing it in the oklahoma area so I'm assuming you guys are bringing it back next year. And uh, yeah, okay, you're shaking your head, yes. So uh, can you kind of give us a little feeler on what you got, if you can, like like who who may be coming in or, or what your thoughts are for the lineup? So I'm not sure yet on instructors. Um, I know we this last conference we had Robert Ramirez with the Made in Mindset. Um, we had Jacob Johnson on his mentors, mentoring, mentorship. Um, Dave Pruitt came up with his 1403 live burn stuff and then uh, his, his classroom and then Chief Pascal did a strategies and tactics. Um, all was well received. Everybody loved it. Um, as far as lineup, we don't have an idea quite yet on that. We're going to have a, have a meeting here before too long where we can kind of start lining some of that up. But yes, we do plan on having it. Um, we do, one of our goals with it is we want to try to keep it small. Like we, we don't want it to be too big. Uh, we run about anywhere from 80 to 130, 150 probably. I think about 130 is about the most we've had. Uh, we don't want to get too big, if that makes any sense. But like I said, we, we attract a lot of the rural departments. Um, I think we had people from four or five different states this last one that come in. Keeping it small, keeping it personal, uh, keeping it especially like in our hands-on with our fools, because usually our fools members do a lot of all the hands-on stuff, having enough that we can keep that, you know, one to four, one to five student instructor ratio. So they're getting their best bang for their buck as far as skills and they're getting the reputations, whereas reputations, when you get too big and you don't have enough there to help with it, people kind of get lost in the weeds. They don't get the repetitions that, that they're deserved for, for uh, attending the conference. So um, that's kind of our goal with it, but yeah, it will, we will have it again next year. I think next year we're going to try to do it a little bit earlier instead of when we did in October this year, because there were so many other conferences going on that it, it kind of got diluted a little bit and we may have lost a little bit of our um, audience. So we may try like September or something like that. Cause I think we were right in between like Wichita hot, the first in conference um, and then the fire nuggets, Texas conference. Cause I, I went from fulls conference the week that one weekend right to Texas the next weekend. So maybe try to get it to where it's not so um, in the middle of a bunch of other conferences. But yeah, I'm not sure on lineup yet, Jeff, but I'm sure we'll have that soon. I'd like to, we like to bring in one, maybe two uh, big names kind of from the fire service from outside, but we also like to use a lot of our local guys um, surrounding states and stuff inside. And then another thing we try to do too is Guys that want to teach, that want to speak, that haven't really kind of got into the circuit, give them that opportunity um, and see if that's something that they want to dive into. 
uh, how you know, and if they have the the message that they want to deliver, how well it's you know received and so on. So it's a uh, it's a pretty cool deal. Like I said, we just don't want to get it too big, but and, and try to keep it personal. I like what you said that you'd like to see some local instructors kind of use that as a as a springboard to see if they want to take this somewhere else. I think that that is a pretty cool thing that that you guys are doing down there. And while we're on the topics of the fools, it looks like uh, my fools group, the Northland Fools, along with Minnesota Malting Fools, is going to be hosting the international convention next year. So for anyone listening to this, uh, come join us in, in Minnesota next August. It should be a good time. Um, all right, quick little uh, sidetrack, and, and now we're back on track. So, Jayla, the first time that I really got to know you and, and had some you know virtual conversations with you was shortly after your, and we kind of already teased this a little bit, but shortly after your March of 21 article uh, in Fire Engineering titled The Oklahoma City Story, uh, when you wrote that, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired that piece and, and what it was about for those that might not know? So that was shortly after I was introduced to the FRS group. Um, basically, I can't remember if it was Ike. I think it was a, a mixture of Ike and Chief Brush talking about we only record our losses and we're not recording our wins. And that just, that resonated with me because I was like, man, I just, you know, we make rescues, but if someone were to, someone were to ask me how many rescues have you guys made, there was no way of, of telling that. Like we didn't track that anyway, other than going back and trying to search through our previous um, nymphers or whichever. So I was like, there's gotta be a way we can do this. So I got, I got on FRS. The, the site actually before I got on the site I I pitched it to our our deputy and there was I don't want to say that they shot it down because they didn't there was just some uncertainty on um, submitting information or incident information stuff on a public platform I was like okay so let's back up so our our deputy chief likes us to come to him with solutions not problems so they're like, right, I'm gonna come up with a solution for this we recently, at that time, just started using Microsoft 365. So I got on there, found a Microsoft Forms. And basically you could create your own like template survey. I was like, well, I'll just, this, this will work because it required a city email to log into in order to submit information. It's like, well, this kind of, I mean, it's not 100% secure obviously, but it kind of, this may help my, help, help what I'm trying to do. So I built it. I basically just took the uh, questions off the survey, rescue survey off, off online for the national survey and pretty much typed up and did our own that looked exactly like FRS and took it to our deputy and, I, and with the flyer talked about, okay, CFD grabs, what the mission of it was, what, what data we're trying to collect and gave examples from the fire rescue survey. At that time, my deputy had not, I don't think had even heard of fire rescue survey outcome. So exposed him to that. He's like, yeah, I like it. Let's do it. So we went live with our um, internal survey in 2020. I think it was like June of 2020. Um, and at first, this isn't something that happened overnight. Um, it was kind of kickback. Well, not really kickback, but not a lot of people knew about it, even though I made the flyers and it got sent out, uh, department email and everything. It was just kind of one of those things that gets mixed in with all the other emails and they just kind of slip on path. So it took probably a good year, a year and a half 
um, to catch hold. I think this year's probably caught hold the most where I'm not necessarily having to reach out to um, the crews that make a rescue and ask them, hey, can you submit a survey? This is where it's at. Here's the link. It's gotten to the point now where I log into uh, forms and it's already been submitted and sometimes submitted by two or three people for the same survey, which I can see that and be able to filter that out. Um, but it's uh, it's turned out to be a pretty cool thing. And now guys are like, I feel like most guys are excited to go in there and fill it out because it's it's recording something that they've accomplished and it's a rescue. So that's kind of where it got started. Um, whenever I developed that or came up with it, I showed Brush. It's like, hey man, check this out. It's pretty much like fire rescue survey, but this is what I did. And he's like, oh, this is freaking badass. And then next thing I know, I got an invite to the FRS uh, Facebook group or a message group, and it kind of just blew up from there. Um, the influence on writing the article is basically from you guys, because I think Nick and Jeff, both of you guys are like, hey, yeah, write an article and we'll put it on the page. I'm like, uh, okay, I don't know anything about writing articles, but we'll come up with something. So started that. Uh, wrote several different drafts, had several different people look at it, including the deputy. He was good with it. Um, and it just kind of took off from there. And then with your help, Nick, uh, went on to fire engineering and they they took hold of it there. Sorry, I was on mute. You spent 14 years with OKCFD and you're obviously intimately involved with reporting all of their rescues to, to FRS. So if I get this correctly, uh, internally, your guys and gals, uh, when they make a rescue will report it, then you take that data and then kind of transcribe it to FRS. Is that correct? Yeah, they'll, they'll submit the survey. Um, I can get on Microsoft forms and look at results and I can pull that specific one. And basically I just scroll through the questions with their, um, entries as I'm on another screen, scrolling through FRS and just transcribing it from our internal to FRS. Perfect. And, and I can't wait to, to finish this question here, but I want to set it up a little bit more. Um, so you're intimately involved and you're the one who's actually taking this information and, and putting it on, on the national database. Real quick, how big is number of firefighters um, is, is, are on the job in OKC? Uh, see, I don't know our exact number right now, but I want to say it sits around 900. Okay. So for 900 firefighters, do you know how many rescues you guys have made since you be began tracking them or in the past X months? So I, I have it broke down by year. If that helps. Okay. Uh, yeah. What do you guys? So the year we went live, uh, was 2020 and we had a total of 641 working structure fires. Um, again, I'm going to back up a little bit. When I started this, I had a um, question that had an answer available that if they found a victim, if they were left in place for our, uh, for investigation. So yep. it was kind of tracking fatalities. Yep. Obviously which, deceased victim. Yes. Obviously deceased, not removed from the structure. Yeah. So, um, which since then I've taken that out because I didn't, we didn't find real much value in that because it's not giving us much information. But as far as uh, 2020, it was 641 structure fires, uh, 18 victims, seven of those were fatalities. But we had a total of 11 grabs, and seven of those were removed with the pulse, and four were removed without. And then 2021, 611 fires, um, 11 victims, 
three of those were fatalities, eight grabs, six of those with a pulse, two without. And then this year, I don't know why, but it's just, it's a lot more. It's taken off, but 610 fires as of now from January 1 to today, um, 21 grabs, 18 with a pulse or pulse regained on scene. That's a, a question that I added. So we were getting to kind of explain that a little bit. The question was just like on FRS, would the patient have a pulse on removal, alive or deceased? Basically is how you decide that. And we would get yes or no. And that's kind of pretty much all I got out of it. But there are rescues that we have that they may have been pulses on removal, but they got returned, they got ROSC on scene once they got them out and started the cyano kit, or they got ROC in route. So with that, um, capturing those next two things, I can tell, okay, yeah, it did they did remove them deceased with no pulse, but they ended up getting a pulse back either on scene or in route. So that kind of helped with um, a little bit, I'd say, with survival rate. The only um, issue we have with that is I don't know what happens from time that they get to the hospital to discharge. And I'm working on that right now. Mm -hmm. I would like to have a, like when they left the hospital was whether it's they left the hospital alive or they died in the hospital, but there's a hurdle there with HIPAA and you know, you know how that goes. So yeah. Any um, downstream data is very difficult to get accurate data for, unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, so I'm working on that uh, on our 2022 rescues right now, like I said, we're at 21 grabs. Uh, 18 with a pulse or pulse regained on scene and then three without a pulse. And out of those 21, only eight of them did not receive a cyano kit. Now those eight that did not receive a cyano kit also had selected that they were alive um, pulse on removal. Doesn't say why they shouldn't have gotten the cyano kit, which they most likely should have, but it's kind of the decision. So one of those I know for a fact is a double rescue station seven on the green made, um, which I was driving the engine. I didn't get to do the fun stuff, but um, our ladder pulled two people out, our ladder and uh, one of the other engines. Both came out conscious. The second lady, the second victim that uh, Murray and Burks pulled out, um, she, they walked her out. She was laying in the bathroom floor with the wet rag over her face and was still talking to them when they got to her, still zero viz. And then she just stood up and started walking with them out. We've taken lessons from that, obviously, since the UL study that just came out. But she came out, and I took the cyano kit personally to the ambulance. We have a private EMS company that runs our ambulance. And for one reason or another, the uh, medics on that ambulance decided she didn't need it in route because she was walked out of the structure. So that's kind of an example of one of the eight that didn't receive the cyano kit. So I don't, since I was there personally, I know that's why that one was, but the others, I don't know the the reasoning behind um, why they didn't receive it. But for the most part, our department's pretty diligent about any um, fire victims receiving the cyanide kit. Yeah, you guys are definitely forward thinking and on the tip of the spear when it comes to cyanide kits. You mentioned that they you have the cyanide kits in the BC vehicles. Does your third party ambulance company have them as well or do you give them to the ambulance company on scene? They do not have them um, and it's, a fairly new thing for them to get, get getting training on it because most yeah. of them don't even know what it is or how to how to administer it. So typically, what we'll do is we'll send <laughs> excuse me one or two firefighters with that transport ambulance 
um, solely to administer or uh, monitor that sino kit. And yeah, the okay. each BC has one. Um, our rescue has one, and I believe our hazmat has one. And then our um, QA officer seven fifty one he carries one or two extras as well. Okay, what are some of the the uh, the takeaways that your department has passed on to the boots on the ground? for having this internal survey for the past couple of years? So I think a lot of the cyano kits uh, being used. Um, another thing is smoke detectors. Um, that's just like the national survey. We have the question of, uh, was there working smoke detectors? And then I also added in there, if there were working smoke detectors, were they installed by OKCFD? Um, for example, that double rescue we had, there was actually a third victim that got out on his own because he heard the smoke detector. And that was a smoke detector that Station 7 installed like six months prior. So, I mean, in all reality, that's a save also. But because um, when we install our smoke detectors, the crews will write the date, the time, and then what crew, 7C or 19C or whoever, and on the back of it. So even if the smoke detector is melted, get it off the wall, you can still see on the back who installed it and when it was installed. So I think that's another takeaway. Um, one of the takeaway, another takeaway we got from it was seeing our primary method of search, which when I ran the numbers last, I think it was one of our first 45 or 50 rescues, it showed that our primary method of search was oriented search compared to the number of rescues. But then if you turn around and break it down to the um, highest survival rate, our highest survival rate was um, targeted in VES, which makes total sense for us because, I mean, you're getting to them faster and you're getting them out faster. But to see that, and Oregon has always been the kind of go-to way of teaching search. I mean, that's pretty much what you learned for the longest time. That's what I was taught in my academy. Um, so that's kind of maybe a, I wouldn't say a training scar, but maybe like a um, lack of training. Uh, everybody from 18, 2018 on have been trained differently. Not saying it's right, wrong, and different, but different types of search, a little more um, availability on what they can do and what, what you have, what options you have. So that's kind of a, that was kind of a, a takeaway. It just showed that the oriented, yeah, the oriented was the primary one that was chosen, but it wasn't the most successful. And to be able to actually see that with our numbers and actual and our actual rescues um, shows what we should be training more on and what we should be pushing more on. Awesome stuff, man. So like uh, your academy pushes more of like a uh, decision-making approach for, for search rather than X, Y, Z, you know, kind of straightforward checkbox stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. So like just this morning before I came up here, we're doing uh, live fire evolutions with the recruits and we'll assign fire attack, VES, search, vent, and then we'll have a maybe a RIT or just a rehab. And they're, they make the decision. Like, are we going to VES first floor? Or are we going to VES second floor? Um, are we going to, where's the fire at? You know, are we going to, and then search when they're in there, are we splitting? Are we oriented? Are we taking top, bottom? What's VES doing? and kind of coordinating those and working together. So it's not just, hey, go in there and do an orient search till you find a victim. So yeah, there's some decision-making. Um, we tell them, you know, towards the, you know, we run our recruit academy and the, it's the fear, pain, pride is the three that kind of the phases they go through. And in that, that uh, 
more pride modes when we get into our live fire and our evolutions and we tell them you're allowed to think like make a decision look at what you have put the things together and make and be able to make that decision on what's your best options so awesome well thank you for giving us all that information so kind of getting towards like tail end of our question so if uh, if you could see into the future, uh, what would fire service training and learning look like in, in 10 to 20 years, you think? Mm. Well, hopefully not all virtual. That would be a good thing. Um, man, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I, I've never experienced the um, outside academy style as far as like regional academies. I've always been part of um, internal. I think it's good for certain areas, um, but I see a huge benefit for our internal because they're getting the required certifications, but they're also getting, um, they're not being told one way and then getting on a department that does it completely different, if that makes any type of sense. So they're not having to basically be retrained when they come out of the academy. And so I think that's a big thing. Um, but I don't know that that works for everybody. Like I said, I haven't been exposed to that. So as far as training 10 years from now, I would hope that we could somehow make more realistic um, live fire training. I mean, I know we can only do so much with the regulations and, and FPA and all that kind of stuff, but trying to push more realistic fire training, whether it's the academy or uh, regional academies or the internal and just make that the norm rather than the the um, all the hurdles and stuff that you have to go across and it's just like it's an inherently dangerous job right so and we're here to save lives it's what we signed up for we got to have our training as close to the real thing as possible because you get them out there and if all they've done is drug through a concrete tower with fake smoke or or no smoke at all and they get out on actual structure fire like just recently we, I was having this conversation this morning with uh one of the mentors for this academy like we have kids in this class that they don't know what a house on fire looks like they don't know what the inside of a house that has hoarding conditions so it's like until yesterday when I did my search lecture and I showed them actual fires we made this last year of two hoarder houses you couldn't hardly even get through it changes the game totally and they were even asking, well, how do we do a tripod when you only got an 18 inch wide trail to go through the house? It's like, you have to adapt. It depends on your conditions. Can you see, you know, what's, you, there's so many different variables and it just opens so many eyes to, wow, this is so different. And you can't really create that with live fire for the regulations. You know, you can't have a, a train tower. I mean, you could, you get in trouble, but you can't have a train house, train tower full of just tons of shit like you see in some of these places and still have live fire and stuff and, and and make it feasible you know and do the right thing so if there was some way we could overcome that i think would be and and we do a little bit of both i'm not dogging on uh fake smoke and stuff you know there's there's times and places for that and we use both i mean i'll use the uh, theater smoke for the visibility aspect but i'll use um, a smudge pot or a barrel that's just barely uh, going just so they have that smell that they have anytime they're done on the drill ground there's a barrel burning or the dumpster burner or something so that smell is always there if you get them acclimated to that just like lights going on on the rig when you're doing the training or siren here and there coming in or whatever get those 
those two or three things less stressors when they get out on the actual fire scene that they're not it's not triggering that elevated heart rate it's not triggering them getting breathing faster and everything else so they're still going to get no more they're still going to be excited just like any of us get on a fire alarm but to help kind of slow that down back it off a little bit um get them if they're used to those kind of things um then it's going to make a, a big difference on their anxiety and stress levels on scene too especially if they haven't been exposed to it yeah great answers and i love the for nothing else just having the smell there i think because smell is so closely tied to memory i think uh, and i've seen some studies on this that you're you can you can go back and and find stuff from training you know uh, at least there's a theory on this that that you can uh, what's the right word here um you can grasp some of those those lessons that you've learned in the past better just because you've added up that that smell in there and now that smell is on that scene and now it, it somehow it ties you into those memories in there so i don't think i did a very good job of explaining that but i think there's some science to what you're doing as well um all right big broad brush strokes here when it comes to the fire service what are we, the American Fire Service, doing well, and what could we improve on? Well, I think what we're doing well on is um, being more open to outside training. You see a lot more of the smaller conferences popping up. You see a lot more of even the big conferences, but people attending these, and it's it's becoming more of a normal, accepted thing. Um, I, I've seen it on our department for a while when I first started going, like when I went to FDIC and stuff years ago and wanted to go to these outside trainings, it wasn't necessarily, you come back and it wasn't that accepted, I guess I could say. Not that you want to come back and change the world, but like anytime it's mentioned, oh, you went to so-and-so's training or whatever, they don't do things there like what we do here, you know, the OKC is different. This and that. that that mindset, that mentality is changing a lot. And um it, it helps that more and more people are going to that, that kind of stuff. The biggest thing is, I think we're probably getting pretty good at this as the fire service as a whole is accepting that, like accepting the outside ideas and understanding that it's not just your department's way that you can learn things from other people in other departments. So, and other, and other conferences. So I think that's the thing that we're doing good as a fire service as a whole. I think we're also headed in the right direction with, um, capturing the winds, you know, like the brushes um, practically did and the information they put out for that quarter. Uh, I think that opened a lot of eyes. And, and in fact, I know it opened a lot of eyes because you have a lot more people jumping on board. I mean, how many, we've got several departments now on board that at least they're doing it internal, even if they're not um, actively allowing them to put it on FRS, we'll at least get numbers or data to be able to, to add to the nationals. So, and we're seeing increases on that regularly so i think that's another thing that's really taken off and helping out helping the fire service what was the other part of that nick you said and what are we lacking yeah so you we hit the we hit the top part what are we doing well what could we improve on mm, i think as a whole well we definitely could improve on building construction um it's that's not a sexy topic not a lot of people really dive into that and and get to that man it's it's really one of the foundations of what we do and by understanding that well can make so many other things easier you know i i try to I give uh 
an intro to building instruction for search stuff because it makes a it makes a big difference reading you know looking at a structure being able to tell what rooms are where where we're making entry what are we going to have when we find when we get in um again those are all going to be you know 100 absolutes because it's anything like my district there's so much weird stuff you see all the time that's not normal but at least having a basic knowledge and understanding of how something's laid out or how it's constructed makes a huge difference and i don't think we do unless you really uh, go dig in, like if you try to get out and on your own and dive into that stuff, the information's there. I just don't think we're that great at, at making it something that's desirable, if that makes much sense. Oh, good stuff, man. Let's do a little rapid fire. What's the uh, best class you've attended in your opinion? Man, I'd have to say it would probably be the first time I went to FDIC uh, 2000. I can't remember. I think it was 14 or 15 or somewhere in there. It may have been earlier. No, it was earlier than that. It's probably 10, 2010. But uh, one of the classes that I took there that just stood out and pretty much sparked all of this for me was Chief Ike's Water on the Fire, um, Victims Before Water. Or no, it was Water on the Fire. And, man, he was so fired up. And I I was fired up by the time I got out of there. It was freaking awesome. And then it just led on to so many other things. Then I started branching out and reaching out to the, going to the Pensacola conferences, you know, command officer boot camp was the first one I went to. And then just each one after that. And then to other conferences that I heard from there or people that I've seen or heard speak and just gone from there. So I'd say that would probably be the best class just because it contributes so much to what I did from there on. Love it. All right. Uh, best conference uh, that you have attended, been a part of, whatever you want. I feel like this is a trap. <laughs> no, uh, man, the, I can't really say that I have a best conference. Um, I'm, I would probably say if I had to pick one and not just so much because of the um, skill or the hands-on aspect um the class the class uh classroom stuff and lecture stuff was was awesome but it would be probably the first command officer boot camp i went to um because they included the spouses and that was that was a pretty big deal uh, my wife loved it she's gone every time since then along to other conferences because of that once she saw that it was accepted to have spouses involved um and other spouses there and then networking that she got also um was pretty cool so i think that was probably the best one just because it it really flourished everything else from there you know that's that's pretty much what got her into everything and the and the peer support and her and the fire life presenting the fly preventing the flashover stuff so I, that's probably the best conference i would say awesome uh best book that you've read and I was trying to find the author on it because I don't have it, but um, there was a book that my wife brought back from, oh, it was when she was going through this CISM training for her peer support. They had a police officer that was uh, OKCPD that was teaching it, and they gave them all a book called Thin Blue Line. And it's a uh, female author. I, uh, if I find it, I, I can get it to you guys, but um, she's the oh wife. 
she's the spouse of a police officer. And basically it just talks about um, how they work through things as her being the wife of a police officer, but it related really well to the fireside as well. And she's like, I want you to read this because I'm supposed to read it, but I want us both to read it. And it's kind of like being able to see what your spouse is going through, not just if you're first responder spouse, but also the spouse of the first responder. So like I can understand what my wife's going through and things that we could do to communicate better and stuff at home. And then vice versa, like if she knows when I'm coming home and it's been a long night, she can tell by certain things that happens or things that I say or whatever, then she knows what she needs to do in that situation. And it really, it prevents the flashover. Basically it prevents um, the miscommunication and the, the blowups that can happen when all you do is understand, you know, kind of what's going on. It was, it's a really powerful book. Um, and I thought it was really good. So that would be probably the best book. So I, I just searched and there's like multiple books with the title Thin Blue Line. So I looked with one with a female name. Is it Crossing the Thin Blue Line by Lisa Harper Lerner? Uh, that that might be it. It says our is world is, is filled with hurting people. Lisa Harper Lerner was one of them. Until our encounter with Jesus Christ, read how Lisa came from walking with outlaw bikers to serving law enforcement officers and eventually marrying a career law enforcement officer. Does this sound right? uh no i don't think that's it because i'm looking at it right now it's a it's a it's a white cover i'll have to i text my wife earlier she she knew but she hadn't texted back yet um yeah i'll have to find it and get it to you guys because it's pretty awesome all right so uh lastly what podcasts uh should our listeners also be listening to and like like we talked about before the show Corley and Weekly Scrap just does a, a phenomenal job. So we're just going to give him a shout out, you know, prior to even you picking. So, so uh, I would say the number one or one of the number one ones would be the Grads podcast. Um, it's pretty cool what Grant and Bedin McWilliamson's got going there. Just being able to listen to the firsthand account. It's, you know, it's not a super long podcast. You can listen on the way to work and just listen to real accounts of, of guys making. Uh, guys and gals making rescues um so that would be a good one i'm always waiting for the next new episode on that um and i also try to anytime we get a rescue get those guys that crew's information to grant so they could possibly get a uh an episode going um some of the other ones i wrote some other ones down that i listen to regularly would be um make do podcast journeyman obviously of course, Dave Mellon with Valor Fire, his podcast, and then he's supposed to be starting that new one. Um, God, what was the name of that? I can't remember what the name of the new one's going to be, but that's supposed to be coming out soon. Uh, obviously, Sanders with Crew First Culture, um, NRC, National Rescue Consultants. And then the other one, the only one I have that I listen to that's not fire-related is uh, Real AF with Andy Priscilla. Um is a self-made entrepreneur. He's got some really good um, kind of self, self-made stuff and and like leadership stuff. And then he's also got some other good, some other good episodes that are in there. So I probably I'll probably listen to him the most just because he updates so often. So solid answers right there. And I'm having a hard time finding that book, but if we find it, we'll see if we can add it to the show notes. The the author of that book. Um, just want to say thank you so much, Justin. We really appreciate your time and your willingness to help spread the cure. 
And then lastly, a big thank you one more time to Vanguard Safety Wear for sponsoring the podcast. So thank you so much, fellas. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, homies.